Two economists and two philosophers walked into a seminar. No, that's not the opening line of a bad academic joke. It's the beginning of the origin story for the new book, Educational Goods, in which four distinguished scholars draw on the tools of philosophy and social science to help education policymakers make better decisions. Decisions that are at once morally responsible and evidence-informed. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by two of the authors of Educational Goods, University of Wisconsin philosopher Harry Brighouse and Brown University economist Susanna Loeb. Harry, Susanna, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thanks for having us yeah, here. Thanks for having us. So I want to start out by asking you what's wrong with one of the most commonly used terms in education policy, a term that's often held up as an aspiration even for decisions. What's wrong with data-driven? Well, I think one of the problems with data-driven is it makes it sound like we would, that data itself can tell us what to do, but we have to really know where we want to get to. We need to know what our goals are, and the data just informs us in terms of how we get there and how far we are towards getting where we want to go. So if having our policy decisions be data-driven isn't the goal, then what is the goal? The goal is to have a careful reflection on what we really think we have reason to care about. So what, what values do we think really matter? Make sure that those values are front and center in guiding our decisions. And, of course, making sure that we have the relevant data and the relevant evidence uh, so that we can guide those decisions well. It must Decision-making is just basically random choosing unless it is informed by data and evidence. But it is not even random choosing if it's not led by values. So the way we think about this is that it's values-driven and data-informed. I think that's a nice way of summarizing the project of the book. And I should say that this is not a book that recommends particular policy choices. So readers who want to know what Harry and Susanna think about charter schools or accountability programs are going to be disappointed. But what you do do is to put forward a method for evaluating policy options that combines value considerations and empirical evidence. And that framework starts by identifying a set of educational goods, one of at least two interesting terms you coin in the book. So what is an educational good? So we think of educational goods as uh, sort of embodied in the person that gets educated, and they are we break them down into knowledge, uh, which is sort of straightforward, factual, sort of what is often thought of as sort of cognitive uh, knowledge, skills, but also attitudes and dispositions. Uh, we don't just educate children to be machines that um, have skills that are based on knowing things, but people, people who, can, who are well disposed toward other people who have certain kinds of uh, attitudes to the world. And you create different categories of these knowledge and skills that are ultimately meant to contribute to human flourishing. So yeah. tell us a little bit about those categories. Yeah, so, so our first sort of pass at this was what we should do is we should produce the knowledge and skills that are necessary for children to, to flourish and to contribute to the flourishing of others. But as you can imagine, that is not a particularly helpful thing to say to an elementary school teacher. So what we did was we broke down... Um, we, we thought of an, an intermediate set of categories, um, a set of capacities that people uh, would need that would help you organize the kind of knowledge, skills, attitudes, and dispositions that, that, that you'd want to produce in children. So what are they? Um, 
personal autonomy is very important, the capacity to contribute effectively to the economy, and we understand that in a very broad way. It's not just what gets counted in GDP. The economy is much bigger than that. Um, the uh, democratic competence, the ability uh, to understand and participate in democratic uh, processes in a responsible way, um, in a way that treats others properly as well as advancing your own uh, views. The capacity to treat others as your equals, um, the capacities for needed for healthy personal relationships, and then we've sort of got a little catch-all at the end, which is uh, the capacity for personal fulfilment. Um, things that are, you know, just enjoyments in life. Um, uh, is that where cultural appreciation yeah. would come in? Yeah, I think so. I mean, cultural appreciation, maybe sport, sporting, uh, in, you know, skills and enjoyment. I mean, for most people, that's not a way to earn a living. My, my, my favorite on that is the capacity to understand a joke because it really lets you understand that there are there is knowledge that you need in order to understand a joke and appreciate being part of a culture and being uh, so that you have the, the I don't know this ability to get joy out of life but it's it doesn't come automatically out of the sky it's something that develops in people and schools can schools can expand one's capacities for personal enjoy, fulfillment as well as the, all the other capacities beyond what the home would do or one's community would do so it sort of it gives you an it gives you a, a reach to a wider array of sort of op opportunities for personal fulfillment so you begin by thinking systematically about the capacities children need eventually as a product of their education to live flourishing lives but you argue that policymakers need to keep in mind other goods beyond education that also hold value, things such as respecting the democratic process, not infringing on individuals' rights to choose their occupation or where they live, even if doing so would make it easier to solve a particular policy challenge. And one of these independent values that you put forward is quite novel, this notion of childhood goods. So what are childhood goods? Well, uh People spend a, a big chunk of their life as children, and their experiences during that time are important to them and are important to their flourishing, even if they don't contribute to their capacities and their ability to do things later on. So we've coined the term childhood goods to capture those experiences, the benefits they get during those years. And schools can really affect it. Certainly some of those experiences are, are at home, but some of them are in school. And what's important, too, is that some of those experiences you can only experience in childhood. So certainly um, the enjoyment of uh, you know something beautiful and fun and so can be experienced throughout our lives, but the exploration and the the excitement of something you've never experienced before comes really strongly in childhood, and so those those childhood goods are what we think of as consumption in general or as as. Um, the utility of, of living for everybody, but it can be really more, more intense in childhood as well. You've just outed yourself as the economist uh, in the conversation <laughs> by saying, what we're really doing here is recognizing that we're not just investing in children when they're young, but we're also trying to provide them with some consumption value, right? Uh, that, that's just right, though. We worked very hard, clearly not hard enough at getting me not to phrase it in that way. <laughs> And so finally, beyond educational goods and these independent values, 
you note that policymakers need to pay attention to issues of distribution. And here you reject the term equity, arguing quite convincingly, in my view, that its meaning is unclear. What do you propose that we use instead to think about the distribution of these goods? So we think that we broke the uh, sort of conceptual space down into three parts. So we sort of think there are three values that are often things that people mean when they talk about equity or when they care about equity. So one is equality. Um, and when we, when we talk about equality, we really do mean equality. So I, I think when people think about equal opportunity, what they're thinking is um, we want children, when they reach adulthood, in a society where you're competing with others for positions, uh, status, wealth, etc., we want them to compete on a level playing field. Well, a level, a level playing field would be having the same preparation, having the same actual level of educational goods. So that's one thing that matters. If, in, insofar as you think opportunity, equal opportunity matters, you think that matters. Another value that uh, distribu distributive value that has been a lot of emphasis has been put on, on it in American um, debates around funding of schools is adequacy. Um, and obviously, sort of ultimately, what matters is you're flourishing, that you're, you're flourishing as a person. And so we want to interpret adequacy as the provision of schooling and education that is needed um, in order to you, for you to be able to get to some threshold of, of flourishing. And the third uh, value, which um, is not very present in the public debates, but I think actually does underlie quite a lot of what... People are very, very rarely explicit about it. Um, but I think actually underlies quite a lot of people's thinking is a concern for the disadvantaged and especially a concern for the, 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 the most disadvantaged, the least advantaged. So we sort of include benefiting the less advantaged as an important distributive goal for education. And again, it's benefiting the less advantaged in terms of their ultimate flourishing. Um, and that's how you identify them. The people who are going to flourish least, you want them to flourish more. So would educating students with disabilities be an example of this value of concern for the least advantaged? Yeah, so I think... Um, so. They are, people with very severe disabilities are among the more disadvantaged people in our society often. Um, and educating them is very important uh, for their own ability to navigate the world. It's not necessarily the only important thing for their flourishing. So if you think about people with very severe cognitive disabilities, I do think actually it's important for them to be educated uh, well. Um, but a lot of their long-term capacity for flourishing over the course of a life is going to depend on uh, technological developments, on having highly skilled carers, um, on having um, maybe medical developments, and those are achieved by educating other people. A lot, it's true for everybody, that you know, if nobody else was educated, your life wouldn't be very good. Right? All of us benefit some from the education of others. Um, but this is a sort of case where people who are very disadvantaged can be, benefit a lot from the education, um, investing in the education of other people. Well, one interesting thing, Marty, about these, these different kinds of distributive principles is that sometimes they move together. Sometimes if you help one, you're helping the other. You invest in the uh, very disadvantaged 
disadvantaged community, and that improves outcomes, it increases adequacy, it makes things more equal. But sometimes there's conflicts between the two. For example, when you think of the very high-achieving uh, students or the very wealthy families, we've seen a very big uh, tail in our income distribution, so we've got uh, some super high uh, in parents with lots of money investing in their kids. If we focus on uh, getting kids o over a certain adequacy level, we may be focusing on adequacy but not affecting inequality really at all. Yeah. In order to affect inequality, we need a much different system that, that focuses on the top as well as on the bottom. So they don't always correspond. And that highlights something that I think is a broader uh, characteristic of this framework that you're putting forward, which is that you're telling us what considerations to have in mind, but not necessarily what weight to place on each of them, right? And so presumably the individual decision maker needs to decide how much they want to prioritize adequacy relative to equality, uh, as well as different uh, educational goods that you start out with. Yeah, so every, I mean, in one way, everybody is a philosopher. Everybody is making judgments about what values they have reason to care about and making judgments about how much weight they should have relative to one another. Um, and we thought that if we stipulated, you know, one value should have weight, more weight than another, should have more weight than another, and exactly how much, people would think we were being ridiculous and wouldn't listen. Um, and to some extent, they'd be right to do that. Uh, we can't just stipulate we have to have reasons. Um, there's a lot of scope for reasonable disagreement about how much weight to put on each of these values relative to the others. And we want to invite people to think carefully and responsibly about really how much weight they want to put on one value relative to another. We, we hoped or hope that by articulating the set of values, we're helping people, we're giving people a sort of intellectual framework um, which will make it easier for them to reflect responsibly about exactly that. And I think we hypothesize that what seems like a big difference in how people wait is more a lack of communication and a lack of clarity where many of us may share approximately the same weight that we would put on these things. But because we haven't laid it out that way, we, we're not thinking in terms of the whole picture. And we tend to focus on one thing uh, while someone else is focusing on another. And it makes us seem like we're in much different places than maybe we are. Or it may turn out that we're placing the same weight on two goods, but we have disagreements about how to interpret the empirical evidence, right? Because ultimately, you're trying to provide a framework for people to uh, draw on both these value considerations and the evidence and understand them in relationship to one another. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So just as there's lots of scope for reasonable disagreement about um, how much weight to put on the values, there's a lot of scope for reasonable disagreement about how to read the evidence about lots of controversial matters. I mean, when the evidence is in, di in dispute, it's often, not always, because there's uh, scope for reasonable disagreement. Um, and w another thing we think our framework would help you do is figure out whether you're disagreeing about values or whether you're disagreeing about evidence. And one of the m big goals of the book, at least from the social science 
side of it is to identify the kinds of important research we need to inform policy. So by saying these are the outcomes that we think could be affected by the policy choice, it lets researchers know that, okay, this is where we need evidence. And so our hope is that it leads to evidence that helps us think uh, in a broader way about all the things that we care about. In addition to highlighting which evidence might be most useful, you acknowledge that the framework also highlights that in the case of any given policy choice, we almost never will know everything we would want to know in order to make it in a data-driven way. Uh, is there a danger then that by making all of this explicit, we end up being somewhat nihilistic about evidence and sort of saying it can't tell us anything at all? No. I, well, I mean, yes, of course there's a danger <laughs> that, that some people will take it that way, yes. Um, but I, I don't think that's the right way to take it, and I don't think that's the way most people will take it. So evidence is always incomplete. That's true in your personal decisions about what you do in your daily life, what kind of job you choose, when you get married, if you get married. like You don't know what it's going to be like exactly. You make uh, your best judgment about what it's going to be like or how things are going to go in the light of the evidence that you do have and in the light of experience. Now, one thing I would say um, about um, lots of decision makers who are administrators, um, and I'm sort of very vividly aware of this, I grew up in a home with um, a superintendent of a large school district. He was my dad. I mean, I didn't just grow <laughs> up in the house. And, um, but he has a great deal of experience and a great deal of tacit understanding of sort of how things work that he can't even necessarily articulate to me in some cases. He certainly wouldn't articulate it to me until the decision was there to be made. Um, uh, and that is often what gets brought to bear when evidence is incomplete. So a, a responsible decision maker gets their values right really pays attention to the evidence and then has some sort of uh, judgment about how good their tacit understanding is. So if there are lots of decisions which if I faced them, I would think I don't have the experience to really make reasonable judgments about what, um, how things are likely to go here, given the incomplete evidence. But sometimes I think my dad probably does. And if you're a if you're an appropriately if you're appropriately epistemically humble, you look for the people who can help you reflect and, and fill in on that. Now, one audience for this book is clearly decision makers, but for reasons Susanna you just highlighted, another audience is researchers because the framework can highlight what evidence would be most important. As you were wrapping up your work on this book, Susanna, you took on leadership of a major project in which you brought together dozens, I think, of researchers to do studies uh, to make policy recommendations for California's school system. How, if at all, did your work on this book inform your approach to that, that project? We should say it's known as Getting Down to Facts 2, and uh, listeners can find lots of information on it uh, online. But... How did this work inform getting down to facts? That's a, that's a really good and difficult question. So our goal in getting down to facts, too, was to um, paint a picture, get as clear a picture as we could of where California's needs were in education, 
how good the policies were and what were options moving forward. And in order to do that, it's, it's a very concrete uh, goal, which is to, to improve policies for California schools. I really did want it to, to consider the broad range of goals that we have for California. That was one. So one of the things we did was Harry wrote uh, a chapter there describing what the stated goals were. And then we tried to uh, capture information on a range of student outcomes related to that in order to get, get at that. So the there's the, the kind of goals aspect of it. But the information stuff that you just talked about as well, the, the different kinds of research and the imperfections of research came through too. That in the academic work I do, it's very very important to get precise causal analysis and to really be sure. But in this case, we wanted to provide the best evidence we could, which came from a bunch of sources. So a combination of clear empirical causal analysis as well as perspectives from teachers and principals and superintendents. I really tried to think about all the kind of evidence that might be helpful in making the decisions on how to move forward. My guests today have been Harry Brighouse and Susanna Loeb, two of the authors of Educational Goods. You can, of course, find their book for sale in all the usual places, and you can find a review of the book in the fall 2018 issue of Education Next. Harry and Susanna, congratulations on the book, and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.